I think Ben Horn and I first talked about recording together in 2018, not long after I was introduced to his work. But as John Lennon famously said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. And for one reason or another, we just couldn't get our schedules in sync. But I am so grateful that we were able to circle back around and make this happen. I'm a huge fan of Ben's work. And I think one of his superpowers as a photographer is capturing the quiet drama of big places. Subjects and scenes that most of us would simply ignore if we even noticed them at all. It's really beautiful work, and I'm happy to finally connect with Ben to talk about it. I'm Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is my conversation with Ben Horn. Please listen carefully. What came first for you in terms of a, a love of the great outdoors or a love of photography? Did, did one lead to the other or did they both arrive simultaneously? How'd that work out for you? Uh, I would say it was the the outdoors. I'd go on uh, family camping trips yeah. uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, and actually, that was the first time I went to Zion, first time I went to Glacier, went to these areas. And I was like, I don't know, seven years old, something like that, maybe a little younger, six years old. And so that, that leaves a lasting impression and then, um, got more into the photography side kind of in high school. Um, so it was the outdoors first and then the photography side. And then I was of all the different types of photography out there. Um, I was definitely drawn to the landscape, the outdoor stuff. Cause I could just go off on my own. It, it wasn't like, you know, shooting portraits or anything like that, where sure. you have to like work with, you know people. So <laughs> just, I just, just to go out and just have some, just, you know, I'm very much an introverted person. So being able to go out and just, uh, go off on my own and find stuff I, I has been far more appealing than, uh, try to do something where I have to work with the crew. And I, I have some friends who do uh, commercial photography and just seeing how much work goes into all those shots. I'm like, no, that, that is not, not for me. I just want to take a picture of a rock somewhere. Right. And were you like in, into the scouts or anything like that? Did you, did you have that sort of nature slash survival kind of training or background to make you feel comfortable in the outdoors or did that come with time? That came with time. I, yeah. I, I didn't have any sort of training for that. Um, but much of what I do is I return to a lot of the same areas. Mm -hmm. And so you get to know those areas very well. And so you know what to expect and what sort of uh, conditions there are, you know, where the good places to camp are the water sources and you know, all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, but if I, if I was dropped into a completely different environment, like up in the Pacific Northwest or somewhere like that, um, I would feel very, very much out of my element up there. Uh, so I just kind of ease into it a little bit of time, get used to it, but, um, nothing, nothing very dramatic if it's the first time I'm going to an area because it's, it's very intimidating in that sense. Yeah. Does, does one sort of type of topography or type of uh, environment speak to you more? Like I grew up in California, but every summer from, gosh, the time I was five until college, really, we were in Arizona. And so mm -hmm. the, the desert really speaks to me much more yeah. so than the mountains, for example. I mean, I can appreciate mountain environments. I can appreciate sort of forest and wooded areas. But there's still nothing that really captures me and, and holds me like the desert. Yeah, for, for me, it's very much the same. Um, mm -hmm. I was born and raised here in San Diego. And so we, we have a lot of the deserts and stuff nearby. We're, you know, quite a ways from some of the, you know, bigger mountains and stuff. And to me, like the, the mountains, they, they're beautiful, but it's also kind of like we say, it's kind of like from a distance right. sort of thing. Right. Um, but the desert, there's something about the accessibility um, about the fact that if you see something, you can, you can get there. Um, you can explore quite a bit. You never, I never had the feeling of I'm going to get lost, which I think right. would be, uh, a bit more of an issue in the mountains. Also, you know, there's, there's no bears, there's no, <laughs> right. you know, you don't have big wildlife. There's, there's mountain lions, but you never really see them. Right. You see evidence of them, but, um, but there's something about the desert that feels, um, it feels very kind of reassuring in a way. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Yeah, and, and, and you have to experience it. You can't explain it. You can't explain yeah, that to someone well, who sure. has never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I love, I love going to death Valley cause of just these massive open spaces. 
Um, and then the, uh, the canyons of Southern Utah, um, mm, you get mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. beautiful light down in there. And the other thing too, I think that I really do enjoy about, um, the deserts is that especially once you get down into some of the canyons and stuff, you can find really great subjects to photograph all day long. So it's not just, you know, certain windows when you have to have certain atmospheric conditions right. and everything else just lining up perfectly. Um, you can just find like some cool looking leaves scattered on the ground with some really nice light on them and know that you have this really cool subject that other people may have just walked right past. Right. Right. Well, that's actually one of the things I really love about your work. I mean, when you, when you go to these places, especially someplace like Zion or Yosemite, where, you know, the, the giant wide shot of half dome has been done to death. The, the, yeah. the, you know, the, that one shot where you're standing at the front of the narrows looking in that shot's been done to death, but yeah. you are able to find these quiet moments and, and make that place your own and see that place through your own eyes. And I think that's, it's, it's more difficult because obviously the, 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 the wider sort of more recognizable shots are easily recognizable, right? That's one of the reasons they're, yeah. they're so well known, but there is so much interest in, as you said, a rock or a leaf or, you know, lichen growing on something. And, and it, mm-hmm. it, it becomes, I think they become almost otherworldly the closer you get to your subject in a way. If I, I don't, yeah. maybe it doesn't make sense, but I, I, that's, it's honestly, it's one of the things that I keep coming back to about your work uh, and, and it's just, it's remarkable really. And, and I appreciate that. It's, it's, for me, it's far more fulfilling to find a subject like that um, because you, you don't feel like you're walking in someone else's footsteps. You sure. feel like you're um, able to actually find something. It, it, it takes a while to to be able to start and notice subjects like that. And even some of my favorite subjects I've shot through the years, um, I walk past that subject maybe three or four times before I even noticed it. Right. So it's not like I'm, you know, you know, zero riding on something. You have I think it's part of the process of just uh, getting a little bit lost in the environment, not physically lost, but just um, absorbing everything around you. And uh, there's another thing, too, that I call um, active viewing, where you're sitting there and you force yourself to look at every single thing around you. I'll stop somewhere and I'll force myself to look like all around me. Uh, If you're just out on a trail somewhere hiking along, your mind drifts a little bit and that even though you're, you're seeing everything, you're not really seeing everything. Mm -hmm. And so I like to just stop every now and then. And, and I always tell myself that there's always going to be potential around me. There's always something there. It's just whether you are actually paying attention to it, whether it's, it's whether you actually want to see it or not, but there's always something there. Right. And there's always subjects too, where I'll find something I'm photographing um, there could be another really good subject, maybe like five, six feet away. And the moment you stop and shoot one thing, then you'll start to notice the other things around you. And even though it can be very intimidating sometimes going to these areas and being surrounded by all this stuff, just having that peace of mind that there's, there's opportunity in every direction. It's almost like, um, it's like a, like a creative license where it just, it gives a sense of relief when you're out there. Hmm. That's a great um, way to put it. A sense of relief. That's great. It, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's something that it's, it, tr- it is, it feeds on itself where it truly is very rewarding to, to find those sort of subjects. And I definitely appreciate those larger scenes like the, you know, the tunnel view at Yosemite or some of the areas in Zion. I love those scenes, but I, I have no real desire to photograph them just because I feel like I'm doing something that's already been done. Right. And it doesn't feel like it challenges me that much. Did you ever feel almost a responsibility to photograph those things as, as a landscape photographer, because they are so sort of ubiquitous with those places? Or did you, did you know straight away that that's just not for me and I got to, I've got to forge my own trail kind of thing? Uh, it was early on. It's, you know, these iconic scenes in landscape photography, they are, they're very appealing when you're first getting started because they're beautiful for a reason, right? You already have this formula that's been established of, you know, you stand here, you have this (laughs) sort of light that you go for. Right. It's, it's kind of like training wheels in a way. Um, but then at a certain point you start realizing there's so much more out there. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, um, that I've noticed is that, you know, I could take a picture of 
some like a, a red maple leaf that's trapped in some ice in some random spot in Zion that and that scene will look completely different the following day. So it's just right. some random red maple leaf, a random spot of ice. Um, but there's something about the storytelling ability of this small scene that you can use that sometimes will appeal a lot more to people than an area that they already know. So I know that sometimes people will, for example, they'll purchase a particular photo of a particular location because they have a certain uh, memory of that location. It mm -hmm. brings back, it makes them feel a certain way mm -hmm. versus just a random leaf. You know, a person has no connection to that. They've never been to that area before. But at the same time, you can tell a story with these small scenes that will make a person feel a certain way. Um, and hopefully it's, I mean, it'd be nice if it's something that perhaps I'm trying to imply with the photo and maybe something that drew me to that, you know, scene to begin with. Sure. Um, but it can imply something that has perhaps a larger meaning rather than simply just a location at a particular time. Right. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I love these these small scenes and that storytelling aspect that's possible with those small scenes compared to the big ones that are more location based. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. And I love that you revisit because you are seeing these things that an hour, a, a day, whatever it is later are, are going to be gone. Whereas that that one tunnel view or that that view of the narrows, it's going to be there day after day after day after day. Whereas revisiting these places again and again and, and, and sort of letting, letting the big features kind of fade away so that your brain can find the details, that's so much more interesting, I think, from not only from a creative standpoint, but from a viewer standpoint as well. And, and that's one of the, um, I think that's one of the reasons why I love Zion. Um, sometimes if a person has been to Zion National Park for the first time, it, it's intimidating to go there. You see these, these huge cliffs overhead you see these trees you know sticking out of the cliffs all these colors and it's it's a very sensory overload sort of area but then i'll go to a wash somewhere i don't look at any of those cliffs i don't look i mean i'll i appreciate that they're there but i have zero desire to photograph those i'm mm -hmm. just looking for that you know smaller scene somewhere um and i, I think sometimes it can be um it can be i don't even know how to say it but it might seem odd at first sometimes to like, oh, I, I get these comments sometimes of like, you went to Zion during the fall and you took a picture of a leaf and some dirt, you know. Right. <laughs> it's really rewarding though. It's, I think, I think it shows. Don't yuck my yum, the, man. <laughs> yeah. It, it, even being like more, more aware of the surroundings. But I, I definitely appreciate those, those, right. those larger scenes. Um, but yeah, it's a small scenes that are, there that, is, I, that I do enjoy. Yeah. There is something about it. I you, your work has, has, has gotten me thinking about doing a project of my own, just a personal project of only mm -hmm. photographing things on the ground and, and not raising my gaze beyond 45 degrees. I mean, obviously, so I don't run into things, but I love the yeah. idea of, of capturing things that are, that are largely unnoticed, uh, and, and, and finding and interest in that. For sure. And here's a tricky, or not the tricky thing. Here's the, the, hidden thing about it all. It's actually way easier because hmm. you have a, a much smaller scene where the light is more controlled. Um, you have less variables that you're playing with, which is one of the reasons why I'm attracted to that stuff to begin with, with the, with the large format camera, because it, there's so many, if, if you're juggling so many different things, it just uh, takes a lot out of the experience. Um, but when you have the time to just concentrate, wait for the good light and just kind of get all everything lined up and just it really is that same sort of peaceful experience that hopefully the photo portrays mm -hmm. um, versus one of those big chaotic scenes and, and those those are fun to shoot too but there's something about shooting stuff on the ground where you can just take the time to study it and it has more of a, a zen feel to the whole process as a whole so that that actually would be kind of a a cool project and you there's just so many things out there there's so much potential out right. there you probably find some really cool stuff I feel like I need to jump in here for just a second and clarify something for those of you who are listening to this and may not be familiar with Ben or his work. Ben shoots his landscapes with a large format view camera on 8x10 inch transparency film. And if you've never seen an 8x10 negative, or in Ben's case, a transparency, it is a pretty spectacular sight. The detail is absolutely incredible, and the massive size means that you can make very large prints without any loss in clarity or sharpness. 
Ben shows some of his transparencies on his YouTube channel in his film reveal series. I'll put a link to one of the film reveals in the show notes. And since I've never actually shot with an 8x10 camera, I asked Ben to describe the experience of seeing the world under the dark cloth. Here's what he had to say. With large format, um, the image on the ground glass, it's, it's very dim, but it's very tangible. Hmm. Uh, it's also going to be upside down and backwards, sure. which might sound confusing to some people at first, but that's actually can be beneficial. Um, but it takes your, it takes your eyes a little bit of time to adjust once you, you know, are underneath the dark cloth, you're looking at the scene. What's really nice about that process and something I've noticed, um, in comparison to working with digital now as well, is that it's a far more intimate process, um, where you have the only thing you see is the image on the, on the ground glass in front of you. Um, you know, you see nothing else around you. Right. And I remember, um, early on I was setting up this photo. It was on the edge of a cliff in, uh, the Grand Canyon's North Rim, um, in an area that's not as frequently visited. Um, but I still remember, I mean, I have, it's the sort of thing where I had two tripod legs mostly on the edge of mostly. the cliff. <laughs> oh no. Mostly. Yeah. No. And so I'm <laughs> just kind of like underneath the dark cloth, I'm working with it. And all you do is you just see this image on the ground glass and you know, think, okay, I'll just move it here. I'll do this. And then there's that moment where you pull the dark cloth from over your head and you just kind of look at it and you're like, oh, I'm on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's that much of a separation where wow. it just, it's almost like you're, it's far more tangible because you can, you can touch the ground glass. I'll use my fingers to like measure distances between right. things to see if things are going to line right. So that process with large format is really, really special to it. Um, with digital, um, I just, I don't find like I have the same degree of accuracy, even with a mirrorless camera with a decent viewfinder and mm-hmm. the rear screen. Mm-hmm. Um, having the bigger viewfinder be nice and also having it be upside down and backwards, it makes you think about it a little bit more. And it's almost, a, um, w- when I was in college, one of my professors was talking about, you know, if you're proofreading something you just read it backwards and it allows you to spot errors even better in terms of if something's not spelled right or hmm. something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And in that same sense, if you're setting up a composition, you know, upside down and if it's backwards, you don't think about it for what it is. You just think about it as a collection of shapes and lines right, and right. everything else. And so that also um, plays a pretty big role in it. Um, but when I do set up a composition, the, the other thing about large format is that uh, you're not just going to set up the camera, look through the camera, and try to figure out where to put it. You need to figure out where to put that camera before you pull the camera out. Right. And so it has you already thinking about, you know, where do I need to stand specifically if it's perhaps one of those photos where moving the camera half inch to the left or right has an impact on the way that the subjects align and um, distractions appear and stuff. So I have like this little uh, plastic rectangular thing I can hold up and just move around and it just puts a rectangle on the scene without the camera. Mm -hmm. And then I just set up the tripod, set up the camera. And at that point you're just fine tuning things, but that's all very unique stuff to working with, large format, even though digital makes it way easier to, to focus, to expose, to work in difficult, windy conditions. Um, but also those same limitations for working with film, I think provide a greater sense of purpose to working with film. Mm -hmm. Um, when I went on my recent trip to, uh, my January trip to Zion, um, there are some days when there's this beautiful snowfall, which is not a very common thing to have happen in there. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. But there's one morning where I took a picture of this one particular tree. And then after shooting that, I felt like I was kind of like done for the day. I'm like, I exposed my sheet of film. Wow. I'm good. And then I just wandered around with the digital and took some pictures. And then after that, I just put the digital away. I just wandered around and just soaked in all the the sights and sounds. And, and I didn't have that feeling of being like the chicken with its head cut off running around right. trying to have to capture everything. Right. It's just working on film gave me a sense of purpose. And that's the other thing I really do enjoy about working with a large format. Um, but also the balance of that and digital where digital has a convenience and ability to shoot rapidly changing scenes. Um, so they, they go hand in hand. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do, I am glad I have both. 
And by working with the digital, it gave me a greater appreciation for working with film, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought maybe I would just be lured to working more with digital. But thankfully, the the film is still really has a, a big appeal to me. Right. I love the, the, the idea of the advantage of composition when you've got it flipped upside down and oh, backwards. Yeah. You know, I, I had uh, instructors in, in school that would tell us to, to draw upside down because of the same thing. Mm-hmm. You don't see this as a face or you don't see this as a room or whatever it is. You just see shape. You just see composition. So I would imagine yeah. that there's, there's quite a bit of um, an advantage, really, in, in terms of strength of composition not getting lost in the details of the composition, but rather the the bigger themes that, that you're working with. Yeah. And, and the, one of the good ways of describing it is that if something looks good upside down, it usually looks better right side up. But if, if it looks weird upside down, it usually looks worse right side up. Hmm. So it, it seems to magnify the strengths or the weaknesses of a particular composition. Um, I also have a friend who uh, enjoys to edit his pictures upside down. Oh, um, really? So there's there. Yeah. It actually, wow. it's Simon Baxter who you've had. Oh, on okay. Yeah. Before. Simon. Yeah, yeah, sure. And he did a video about that a while back showing that you will notice things when you edit a picture upside down that you wouldn't notice otherwise. So that was also very, very enlightening uh, to hear him say that. I was always shocked that, well, not shocked, but maybe surprised that Simon didn't embrace film and specifically large format film for some of his woodland pictures, because there, there, there is such a depth to them and there is such a, you know, a, a reverence that he has for, uh, the landscape. I, it, I think his, his pictures would be well served by, uh, approaching them on film as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You, if a person has the mentality, um, like Simon has to, put themselves in the right place at the right time to get to know the subject really, really well. Mm-hmm. And especially when working with a woodland scene where you have to find order to that chaos. Sure. And that's definitely an area where, you know, sliding the camera half inch to the left or right has a profound difference. Yeah. Um, he would definitely do very, very, very well with that. Um, especially with this, all the intricacies of working with the subjects he works with. I know that if I were to go to some of those forests that he goes to, I would just be absolutely overwhelmed. I, I look <laughs> right. at stuff. I'm like, everything looks amazing. <laughs> right. I can't find a single photo here. I'm, I'm, confused. I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, but I would I would appreciate every moment of it. But I would just be absolutely lost. And it would also be interesting to see how he would do if he were to come to an area like Zion or some of these canyons or the desert area, because that would also be a dramatically different uh, environment. Yeah. So that would be it'd be fascinating to see someday. When you go out on a trip, because I know you you travel a fair bit. If you don't come back with, I mean, well, first of all, do you have an idea of what you want to come back with when you go out on these trips? And if you don't come back with it, is it still a win because you've explored the environment and maybe you know where to go next time? So usually when I go to an area, um, there's a particular subject or a particular theme that I have in mind in terms of what I want to pursue. Cause I like to have some degree of, of goals when I go out there, mm-hmm. but you also can't let those goals become too overwhelming because the more you fixate on whatever it is that you want to shoot, the less you're going to see what's actually there. Um, and so this is something I've noticed when I go on my trips where usually the first day or two or three, perhaps, um, I'm thinking about whatever it was that, um, attracted me to go to that location on that particular trip. Maybe it was a particular tree I found last time I was there. I'm like, my goal is to photograph that tree. Um, once I find that, once I get at least the first few photos out of the way where I, you know, satisfy that itch of, you know, going to find that subject at that point, I'm usually more open to my surroundings. And honestly, that's usually when I find the better subjects because you, you release those expectations Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a balance between feeling productive because that's to me one of the worst things is if I'm out on a trip, if I haven't found any subjects, if I haven't exposed any photos, then I start wondering like, why am I even here? You know, I'm surrounded <laughs> right. by all this great stuff. I can't find What am I not shoot. seeing? <laughs> yeah. So you start to question yourself. Right, and, right. and especially when you're off, if I'm especially on a backpacking trip, that voice gets louder and louder. Like, cause there's like no one around, you know, cause you're off in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, but what I find is just, you know, if I have something that'll, that'll attract me to an area and I take notes when I go on a trip. 
Um, I have a little notebook and I'll write down what I call subject discoveries. And then I'll go to those areas. And sometimes I'll look at that subject. I'm like, what was I thinking when I saw Hmm. this last time? Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's no potential here. Um, but in other cases, I'm very fortunate or I'm very glad to have that because that notebook allows me to stay productive in the field. Um, and then as soon as I'm you know, done with the trip, I'll spend a lot of time, um, well, not done with the trip. As soon as I'm mostly done photographing on a trip, I'll spend uh, usually a few days or so just wandering around and writing down more stuff for next time I come back mm-hmm. and when I have more energy mm-hmm. to do that. That one simple little notebook, I think, helps to balance that um, process of, you know, those initial expectations, staying productive in the field. And at a certain point, I just get physically worn out. I'm like, all right, time right. to go home, time right. to have a shower. Now, w- when you arrive someplace, are you taking the four by five out day one and shooting? Or do you start with sort of sketch images with the digital? Do you have to sort of feel your way into it? Or are you, by the time you arrive at a location, you're ready to go? Um, I usually, it depends on the location, but Mm -hmm. I I typically want to get that first shot out of the way, um, pretty quickly. Cause if I can get that first shot out of the way, then it's, it's like a ribbon cutting ceremony at like some new store that's opened or split. Once you get beyond that, then you start to be more aware of your surroundings. Um, so I do like to try to be productive. Um, and if, if it's a, you know, a couple days after getting there when I first, take the first photo that starts to wear me thin a little bit. Right. Um, and then you start getting into this, in this pattern, but I do try to, um, when I go to an area, I try to come up with a plan in terms of wandering around, trying to find interesting subjects and figuring out when the light will be best for them. And then I just start, you know, trying to take out those shots one by one, according to the weather conditions and everything else. Mm-hmm. But it, I definitely do try to be productive on that first day if possible. I would imagine that helps, especially if you can get something that you go, yep, that's, that's what I, I know I wanted to get that shot. It sets the mm-hmm. tone for the rest of the trip or it, it helps to it, set the tone anyway. And there's another side to that as well, which is one of the beauties of shooting film is that I have no clue if it actually turned out. So I play this little mental game with myself where I convince myself, like, let's say I, on that first day, I find that really cool subject and I know deep down it's probably pretty decent. But if I'm very happy with it, then I'm not going to be as motivated to keep finding more subjects. Right. So I go out of my way to convince myself that I messed up that photo. Really? My, my exposure was too short. Really? It was too long. Maybe when I pulled the dark slide, maybe there was a little light leak. And I just dismiss that photo as though it doesn't even exist. Interesting. Which keeps me hungry to find more and more pictures. Right. And um, But at a certain point, maybe if it's like a week into a trip, I'll get to a point where I'm like, yeah, I can't fool myself anymore. If I <laughs> shot all these photos, I'm not falling for I, it. anymore. <laughs> I have to have something in here. I mean, right. like, like I can't, I couldn't have messed up every single one right, of those. Right, photos. Right, right. And so that's usually at the point where I'm like, all right, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good. Um, but overall, if I get one solid photo out of a trip, I'm pretty happy with it, but it's more so, uh, getting to know an area, exploring further. And if I can put some more notes in that little notebook in terms of subject discoveries, mm-hmm. Um, that to me makes it where I feel more, um, like it was a decent success cause it lays the groundwork for perhaps future trips. But if I get one photo, I'm happy. Anything more than that, it's just bonus stuff. Right. And, and do you process the film and look at it immediately or do you, when you, when you return from a trip, do you have to let it sit for a bit and, and sort of, you know, let yourself get at peace with it? Or are you, are you kind of eager to just, let's see what we got immediately? So I, I typically drop the film off at the lab not long after getting back within mm-hmm. a day or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part of the process I do is I'll, I'll record what I call a film reveal video, which is where I take a look at the film for the first time right. on camera. Right. And I do that mostly to record the initial reaction to seeing the images because I've always been fascinated with how our perception with our own work changes with time. And sometimes there's a photo that I might think is really great at first and then at a certain point, I realized, no, that's not that great. But there was this one that I didn't think much of when I first saw it that grows and grows and grows. And eventually I realized that's the better photo from the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started recording these videos partially for that reason, but also partially just as a uh, educational thing for other people that might be uh, curious about shooting film and all that sort of stuff. Right. Um, so there's that process uh, where I see it. Then I will typically scan the pictures and and start working on the videos. And the videos usually come out 
about a month or so after I get back from the trip. So there's this pause of, you know, seeing the film, working with it. And then about a month later, um, to the point where I actually start showing some of the pictures. And in that time, my, my perception changes a little bit. Um, so it's really nice to have that about one month separation because I'm not going to post any of those pictures until the videos come out. Right. And so it's like this nice little buffer that allows me to hopefully finalize my thoughts on them. And at that point I've then done the videos and, and, and share that perception with them. Um, but I, if I were, and that's a thing too, if, um, I was shooting primarily digital, I'd probably still force myself to do that in terms of I download them, but I wouldn't really pay too much attention to, you know, wait a month or so. Right. And then start going through them because then I feel like I, I can know those pictures a little bit better and, and have formulated my thoughts on them a little bit more and yeah. whether they were yeah, yeah. successful or not. I mean, that's one of the things that I, maybe even the thing I miss the most about film is, is letting yourself almost forget about what it was that you shot and, and, and having that moment of discovery, having that, that moment of, of, wow, I got this. I didn't know that I did, you know, I, I thought I did, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know. Um, I, I know a photographer, his name's Ollie Kellett, who mm -hmm. he, he shoots street, um, medium format, beautiful sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. They're these beautiful sort of cinematic cityscapes. But he mm -hmm. won't look at the photographs until the following year. So he'll shoot a wow. body of work one year and he won't look at it until the following year when he started a new body of work. So he has that entire year of, of letting himself really completely forget about the experience and be surprised about it and rediscover the work for himself all over again, which I find That's fascinating. That's a lot of restraint. It, I, right. I, 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 I couldn't do that. it. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't do it. it and and is, does he post stuff on in any sort of social media stuff at all? No, or? not in the interim. He, he yeah. doesn't look that, at it at all. That well, I mean, in terms of like, um, does he eventually post them yes. out yeah. in? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's that's very. I I, I like that approach. Mm -hmm. I, I would not be able to do that with my stuff because <laughs> like, here's my trip from last year. You know. Right. Um. But uh, that could have worked well during the pandemic because that was fresh stuff coming out. You know, during everything that happened. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really admire that sense of restraint and I can see how that would be very much a part of one's process to really just separate from the, uh, from the events and everything else and have a, a better feeling for how it all works as a whole. Right. That's, that's right. really cool. You know, as you might imagine, I've had quite a few conversations with artists and makers over the past year or so of lockdown and each of them has had a very different reaction, both personally and creatively since so much of your work involves being alone in the natural world, I'm curious to hear how your life and your approach to the work has been affected by the pandemic. Um, so it, it hasn't really impacted directly in terms of the trips I've gone on, the places I've been. Mm -hmm. Um, and it has, uh, right when the pandemic began, uh, was I, I, basically quit my day job uh, just to pursue photography because I'd been laying the groundwork for that ever since right. uh, 2017 or so. I was just taking one day off my work week each year. And then last year I was set to be working just one day a week. And then this year was going to be just doing my photography stuff full time. Mm -hmm. So when the pandemic happened, I just, in, in, you know, everything was closing down because I was working part time at a camera store. Um, but when everything was closing down, I just realized, well, this is, I'm just kind of off on my own doing my own thing now, which is good, but also is a little intimidating because it's like, all right, now I got to make this all work. Right. Um, but one thing that happened though, is all the trips in 2020, uh, well, with the exception of my, my first trip of the year, cause that was before the pandemic. Um, but I had three trips in 2020 and even though, yes, they were affected to some degree by the pandemic, um, it was more so the fact that I just, I couldn't really get away. I couldn't get out of my, I couldn't get the pandemic out of my head sure. um, when yeah. going on the trip. So, and that had a very negative impact on the trips um, in terms of wanting to go to some of these areas as an escape. Mm -hmm. But then you get there and you realize it's not an escape. Right. Uh, and even like a wilderness area where there's, there's no one around, but you still feel like the pandemic is kind of following you into the wilderness and it makes it hard to concentrate on working. Um, so in that case, it did have a very negative impact. 
though I'll say that the trips I had, I've had two trips so far this year, one in January to Zion and then one in March to uh, Death Valley. Those ones were like a complete breath of fresh air. Hmm. And I don't know exactly what the difference was. Maybe it's because things weren't closed down as much. Maybe things started opening up a little bit. But those ones were completely different. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out why that is, but uh, I feel like I was more aware of the subject and I was working far better than any other past trips. So maybe it's, maybe it's just the contrast. Would we be able to see those differences as an audience or are they, are they, are they subtle to an audience, but obvious to you as the maker? I, uh, I, I had some people comment cause I, so far I've posted the videos from the first trip and I've had some people comment saying, you just seem like you were very happy out there. Hmm. And so I, I think, I think it does show in that sense. It, to me, it was a bit like when I first started going on these trips, because when I first started going on these trips, I didn't rely on them for any source of income. It was just, uh, it was actually during, um, after the, the big great recession back in 2008, 2009. Um, that's when I started going on these trips because I was working at the same, uh, camera store and, you know, no one's going to go into a camera store and buy cameras when, you know, all of a sudden all the stock markets crashing yeah. and everything else is going on. <laughs> your, your house um, might be gone the next week. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it was, yeah. There's so much turmoil going on. And so, you know, the business dropped off like crazy because it was just, you know, unnecessary spending for most people. And so um, the owners of the shop were just looking for any sort of suggestions people had. And I said, hey, I'll just, I'll go off into the wilderness somewhere. I'll go take pictures for a week. Don't pay me. Um, you know, I had enough savings where I was able to pay the bills and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I started going on these trips to begin with. But they kept uh, you on as an employee in the interim. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that worked out pretty well off in the beginning. So that's kind of how I got started with all this. And, and back then when I'd go on those trips, um, and I did maybe five trips in 2009. That's um, a lot. I, I, yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. And, and some of them were like two weeks or so, you know? Yeah, that's a lot. And, and, and so on those ones, it actually did feel, very much feel like an escape getting off into the wilderness, um, going off into these areas because, you know, I, I didn't really have, there's no pressure on me in terms mm -hmm. of trying to generate an income from it. It was just going off and seeing these places I'd seen pictures of before and I was curious about. Sure. Um, and so I think the trips earlier this year felt a bit more like that, um, which was, which was a really, really good feeling. Um, especially when, um, I don't know, it, it, it just, it, it was, it was really nice the way it worked out. And, and the big test is going to be, um, I'll be doing a backpacking trip pretty in the next couple of weeks or so, uh, into some obscure canyons in Utah. And those are the ones where my mind kind of gets the most of me. Sometimes mm -hmm. you realize I am like, you know, uh, like 10 miles away from my <laughs> truck, which is somewhere <laughs> right. off in the middle of nowhere, which I think uh, is I'm in, in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Like you're down in these canyons where it feels a bit maze, like you're right. in a little trap sometimes. Right. Um, so those are the ones where the solitude can get the best of me. And when I went on my, um, uh, trip to that location last year, um, I drove to the location and there was something weird with the, uh, thermometer in my forerunner where it's, showed it was getting hotter and hotter and hotter outside to the point where I think it said it was like 94 degrees or something like that, which was above my own internal safety limit in terms of hiking into some of these areas. Right. And so I get there and I realized the thermometer was reading wrong. So it wasn't that hot. Right. But I got to this trailhead and I put in 11,000 steps that day all of which was me pacing around at the trailhead <laughs> just because like, I'm like, why am I Should here? I, I do, can't this? do this? What am I doing? Exactly. Just, yeah, just get, just getting in my own head about wow. it. Wow. How'd you and get through sure, it? Um, just by doing it. Yeah. I, I think that's the, the main thing. Um, and so I, I went in there and I sure enough, I found, um, two subjects to photograph, one of which I didn't quite get right that I'm going to try again this time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that kind of gets to the whole thing of, you know, I drove, you know, 12 hours to get this area. Uh, I hike into it and then I just take a picture of some dried, curled up mud underneath <laughs> a rock in some random canyon in the middle of nowhere. All right, I'm done. And I'm sitting here. Yeah, I'm just sitting here like, well, this makes sense. 
you know? So I only have to uh, do this 476 more times this month to make a living. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's, it's like the pressure that comes with trying to, um, like you, you go out, going off into the wilderness and trying to find, um, some interesting pictures. Yes, that's great. But if you have the pressure of, I have to come back with some pictures I'm really proud of, right. That takes it to another level. Um, but thankfully on the trips I had earlier this year, they're very productive. I felt really good about them. It gives me a good sense of direction, um, for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause my goal is to end up just with 10 pictures. I'm really happy with enough to do a box set enough to do the videos and stuff. And so, um, so yeah, it's definitely feeling way better now. And I'm sure you've probably had a, hopefully a, a similar experience as well as things are starting to open up and we're getting our shots and all that sort of stuff. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that I wanted to touch on and, and, Please don't get too specific, but uh, mm-hmm. I, because I don't want it to be kind of an invasive question, but it seems like your audience has been very willing to come on this journey with you. Can, mm-hmm. can am I off base on that? Or does it, does it feel that way to you that they're willing to, to be a support system because they want to, and believe in the work they want to, they want to see that work in the world. Is that, is that the way it feels for you? It, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there's something, and I wonder if it's, I mean, partially it might be because I've been doing this for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, when I put the videos on the YouTube channel, I, I shut off the ads many, many years ago cause I just, I did not like the direction it forces people. Right. And just uh, on a side note, respect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a, that's such a, it, it's so antithetical <laughs> to to the, a certain segment of the maker market right now. Uh, I I have an immense amount of respect for you for choosing that. I, I appreciate that. It, and a lot of it comes from me being incredibly stubborn. <laughs> right. um, stubbornness can be a good thing um, because I my whole thing with photography is I want it to be something that I enjoy. And I, I made a promise to myself way back um, that I didn't want to pursue photography unless I was doing something I actually wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it, if it, if at any point it felt like work, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to take something I love, which is photography and make it into something that becomes work, which is something I then despise. Right. Um, and along those same lines, when you have a platform like YouTube, which is ad driven, um, you know, if you have ads on the channel, you're rewarded by having more views on the videos which then leads towards clickbait and right. then specific topics to gather attention. And I'm a very non-attention seeking person. Hmm. And to me, it would feel like work and it feel like a betrayal of myself to put out stuff that is simply designed to attract attention. And I felt like I was just being rewarded for the wrong reason. Right. And right, so right, right. it was, it was a bit of an act of rebellion to shut off the ads and then say, I don't want to go that direction. I just want to be stubborn and do what I want to do. And I think after, you know, over 10 years now of, of doing that, uh, it's, it, it grows the channel incredibly slowly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like a snail's pace. Right, 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 um, right. But I think it does attract people that are more invested in it. Um, and so it, it becomes enough people watching, even though it's not a very large subscriber base compared to many channels. Um, I, I really define the success by the fact that I'm able to do what I love and able to share that with people and that people are invested in it to me is, is very, um, it's, it's very, very heartwarming to see that. Right. Um, because it means that they're actually responding to the real me instead of just putting out, you know, tips and tricks videos and, right. and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Five ways you can get better large format photos. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always odd numbers. It's right. always That's odd right. numbers for the tips and tricks. Five, seven, three, <laughs> never four tips, never six tips. Ten, no, that would just be wrong. Yeah, ten works sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I would love to see, I mean, talking about all this, I would love to see someone address sort of social media for introverts because the entire yeah. kind of algorithmic approach to social media is you have to be there all the time, multiple times a day, multiple ways. Like all of this stuff is based on consistency and repetition. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons I don't do anything. I, I get asked to do video a lot and I just, I, I can't do it because I don't, I don't want to be out there in that way. Yeah. Uh, and I know that I'm, I'm limiting my own potential 
success, audience size, et cetera. Uh, same thing with Instagram. I, I won't mm -hmm. post three times a day or even once a day or even consistently every week because it just feels expected and not authentic. And I know that word gets battered around a lot lately, but mm -hmm. there, there is an authenticity to your presence online. And, and hearing you talk about it now it makes me appreciate it even more. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I think it just, it, it stems from that sense of stubbornness and it's, and definitely sounds like you, you have that as well, where it's just, if there's something and there's like this, this force that's trying to push you in a certain direction, uh, in terms of, like you said, with, whether it's the Instagram or all that sort of stuff. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've always been one to kind of follow my own path. Mm-hmm. And just do my own thing. Um, like I've I've never been one to if there's a whatever popular dance craze is going on or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's dance no, craze no. really, Ben. That's that's where we're yeah. gonna go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anything like that, I'm just like, no. Whatever the crowd's doing, they can en they can enjoy that. Right. But I will I will have no. I I'm not gonna get anything out of that. Yeah. Um. And so one of the analogies I like to say is that, you know, if you, if you follow your own path, you, you never really know where you're going to end up, but it's so much more rewarding sure. and it takes a long time. That's the other thing too. I think with the internet, with social media, with all that sort of stuff, um, there's a lot of people that are, um, they want that instant quick, um, uh, you know, they want to, you know, grow their Instagram account. They want to do this. They want to do that. Um, but very seldom in life is anything that is instant and that is kind of an overnight success. Very rarely, I think, is that truly satisfying. I think if it's slowly built over time, you build that foundation, uh, you go the direction that you want to go as opposed to being pulled in a particular direction. Um, I think that's far more satisfying in the long run. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think there's Introverts some truth the to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that, that you know, when, when you do have millions, let's say, you have to feed the beast, right? You have to, yes. you have to keep, in order to maintain that, that level of engagement, you, you've got to feed the beast. And I think that the way you are doing uh, the way you're approaching your work and the way you're approaching your presence online feels like it mirrors the sustainability of your work. It, it, it feels like it's commensurate with, with how you're producing the work. It's not artificially inflated just to get eyeballs. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And, and I also, I, I will do things, uh, to, it sounds, it sounds overly dramatic if I say intentionally sabotage, but like, like I, I almost fear that if the channel does grow, that it will have a negative, it would have a negative impact. And, and, and I even know this based on, um, some of the areas I go, um, uh, like I, I don't even, there's a lot of places where I, um, I won't shoot videos or I won't shoot videos. I won't shoot, well, maybe I'll shoot photos, but I'll limit how I share them. But the more, the greater the audience, the more I have this feeling of like these eyes looking over my shoulder mm -hmm. and it's not a good thing. I don't like that. If, if, if a channel had like, you know, like a million subscribers, I would probably be very happy finding some way to like cut that down right. dramatically or just start over again or, or something like that. Yeah. So I, I think in many, that's why I choose like specific, very boring titles for my videos. Cause I don't want like <laughs> YouTube to like say, check out this guy. Right. He takes pictures with like an end table or right, whatever. Right. You know? Well, and I yeah. think like we talked about earlier, uh, you, it's very obvious that you feel, um, let's see, how can I say this? You feel a responsibility and a sense of stewardship to the environments that you photograph. And I think limiting how those places are presented and represented allows you to do the work that you feel drawn to do, but still sort of protect the place in which you do it. Does that make sense? It does. And, and there's a whole movement um, called Nature First, hmm. um, which is 
in response directly to, um, I think, social media in particular, but also uh, just online culture when it comes to, you know, location sharing and people posting pictures in very sensitive areas and and not having a good source of education about the areas that they visit. Mm -hmm. And so um, you'll see sometimes people go to an area and post pictures and they're not they're not mindful of the wake that they create in terms of by posting a picture, then other people will see an area they want to go there and there isn't this sort of um, education about these areas. These areas can't handle it. Um, so it's definitely been a, a growing concern. Um, and I think it was back in, I don't know, 2014, 2015 is when I started to see the effect of some of that stuff. So then I started becoming more like, reclusive with in terms of like um you know not saying specific names of areas mm-hmm. or just being very broad or intentionally misleading mm-hmm. uh, so it definitely has been an issue especially with uh like location tagging on instagram right and right. stuff like that I'll, I'll just use completely random non-related uh location tags for my pictures usually ones that sound kind of funny uh, just as as a source <laughs> just of to rebellion. throw people off <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I think Simon's I think, uh, the same way. Simon doesn't share where he shoots a lot of his woodland pictures for exactly oh, the for same sure. reasons. Yeah, especially since he works in an area that is basically his own backyard. Right. And so you have to be very protective of an area like that because once stuff gets out, it it gets out there. And there's no there's no reeling it back in. Um, so there's an argument I hear sometimes people say or um, when I – posted about this maybe back in 2014, 2015, where I said how, you know, I'm just going to not mention locations or anything like that. There are some people that will accuse one of being elitist or a gatekeeper or something really? on those lines. Yeah. And it, it, and I got, I got some really nasty remarks to that really? because people felt offended that they're I entitled to know where you went. Yeah. Wow. And, and the thing that I found interesting is that these particular areas no one told me about them. Right. I found them based on doing Google Earth and just following my curiosity and revisiting areas again and again. Right. But there were some people that felt entitled that if I didn't tell them that, they would, you know, use that sort of language. Um, no way. But huh. thankfully, there's been a big shift lately um, where now it's going, it's going in a better direction in that sense. Um, I think because people have seen the impact of these areas that wants to be these beautiful, pristine areas, they get trampled. There's vandalism. There's, um, so thankfully things have been going in a good direction. Um, but it's definitely something I've, I've noticed through the years. Have you, have you seen, I mean, we, we, we talked about it a little bit, uh, at, at the beginning about, you know, seeing people sort of carve their names into things. Have you mm-hmm. seen reactions to that sort of curtailing that kind of behavior or do you still see that kind of behavior on the rise? Still see it on the rise. Really? Um, wow. And then this past year was, was by far the worst I have seen it. Hmm. Um, and it's really disheartening to, yeah. to see that because never once have I gone through some of these like slot canyons with sandstone. I'm like, man, I wish I could just write my name in this <laughs> wall right here. Right. It never occurred to me. And, and then you see like some like spray paint in areas too. Not a lot, but there's just, a little bit of that. And so it, it has been getting worse. So I'm, what I'm curious is how things are going to change once we're in the post-pandemic right. times. Um, and hopefully some of this will settle back down. But but even before the pandemic, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and it's always areas that are easily accessible. Um, you know, you never see that way off in the backcountry. But right. areas that are easily accessible um, – it just, it's, yeah. It's is, so is it an education that. issue? Is it a, is it an enforcement issue? Is it a combination of both? I mean, it, it, is it, is it compatible, I guess, is, is the bigger question. I think my fear is that it is just a deeply rooted part of human nature hmm. where if you see something that's not yours, that you want to put a mark on it to say that you were there. I, hmm. I think that's just because these people clearly don't like, you know, pull out a butter knife and like scratch their name in the drywall in their own house. But, you know, they, they <laughs> that go you to know some of. Other area. <laughs> yeah. Like it's they, they, they've proven that they they can restrain from doing that. Right. 
but there's, I think something about that. And, and another thing that has come up recently, which has become, um, a bigger issue lately. And it seems innocent at first, but, uh, cairns, which are rock stacking. So mm-hmm. like stacked rocks, mm-hmm. um, they're used to designate trails in certain areas, but most people will never see those cause they're probably not going to go on the trails way off in the middle of nowhere right. where that's where they would be. Yeah. 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 So people don't typically run into the navigational cairns out there, but, um, what has risen a lot through the years are, um, these recreational cairns. So people just create these elaborate, you know, stacks of rocks and then just leave them there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to be like, if you just on surface level, it's like, Oh, it's just rocks, you know, they'll fall down and all that. But what it is, is it's a person leaving their mark on the environment for other people to see. Mm-hmm. And there should be zero need for that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Other than should, functionally, as you, as you said, marking trails, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like for, for a navigational care. Yeah. That's, that's, it's there for a reason. You shouldn't add to them. You shouldn't destroy them. You know, some of them are officially built by the national park service, but very few people run into those. But these recreational cairns that people set up, they're usually, sometimes they're like, you know, three, four feet tall. Sometimes they have like heart shaped rocks and and they may have been created by good meaning people, but also to me, it looks a bit like coming home after a long day of work, maybe back in the college years when you have roommates and then someone just stacked all these dirty dishes in the sink. <laughs> it's like you left a reminder a of your pyramid of there. Coors cans on the table. Or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, this is completely <laughs> like when I go to often these wilderness areas, I want to have that wilderness experience. I right. want to know that that rock is there because, uh, a flash flood came through and it rearranged things in a particular way. Right. Um, there was another area I went to in Zion. This is often a backcountry area, which where no one ever really goes. And there was like this big sandstone slope that kind of gradually evens out to the point where it's basically just level ground. And there were some rocks that had tumbled down from that slope and they're all arranged down there and they've kind of fallen into these, these grooves in the sandstone and they're arranged in this really beautiful way. And there are some of these rocks that are on top of other rocks and just walking between those, I didn't want to accidentally kick one of them mm-hmm. and disturb it because mm-hmm. I'm like, this rock could have been here for 10,000 years. Right. You know, right. it was placed there by the elements. It's very, it's almost like a spiritual experience walking between those and having this feeling of, you know, uh, just the, how short we are here compared to how long everything is there. And then walking through a wash somewhere else in the park and seeing all these stacks of rocks and just being completely thrown out of the experience. Um, so my whole thing with the recreational ones, I'll I'll carefully disassemble those. Um, but even that now, like, uh, in one of my videos from, uh, my January trip design on the first video, there's just a quick clip of me just, you know, disassembling one of the recreational cairns. And I got so much hate for that. Really? It was, yeah, it was, it was really weird because people think I'm like trying to destroy their sign of respect to the environment. Interesting. like you're just, you're leaving dirty dishes out. Yeah. It's, interesting. It's and the people had written their names on one of the rocks and I'm like, and someone said, uh, yes, they, they were just good meaning people. They wanted to enhance the environment. Uh huh. With their names. Well, they wrote their name on the rock. <laughs> right. And nature doesn't need enhancement. Right. So, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing, but yeah. I mean, do, do you, do you consider yourself an environmentalist, a conservationist, both, neither? Uh, some, some degree of that. I, yeah. I think once you see some of these beautiful areas and you see how they're supposed to be, mm-hmm. and then you see certain changes happening, it's hard not to look at that and say, this is okay. Yeah. If you uh, were of that mindset, obviously. Yeah. 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 It, it's so in terms of conserving what's there, Definitely. Um, and, and I mean, even if we just keep the status quo, that would, that to me, I think that would be a lofty goal, just mm-hmm. the way that things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, and also once you realize how interconnected absolutely everything is, um, then you start thinking about your own actions in terms of like here, I'm, I'm, you know, driving eight hours to, to get to this area to take a picture of some rocks and leaves, you know, is this really necessary? And, so yeah, you start, you start, I think, thinking about these, these bigger picture things, but at least in that sense, it seems like we're going in a better direction in terms of having, um, you know, better electric vehicles that can get to these areas and having the infrastructure. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing because we have to balance, you know, who we are as a society, but also protecting these areas and keeping them pristine to at least have that experience of, of getting out there. It feels like in talking to you now, there's at least a part of your experience that requires more effort than let's say it did five or 10 years ago. You have to go yeah. further afield to get to someplace that hasn't been touched or marred by people. Is that fair? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, I have to work harder to get away from the people. <laughs> that's, that's, and then hope they don't follow me. That's, right. That's the other important. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, For that's sure. another part that we haven't even talked about. I'm sure that, you know, people see guy with backpack and camera, you know, off in the distance, they're going to go, well, where's he, he must know where he's going. Where's he off to? Let's go, let's go follow him and see where he's going. Yeah. It, it, they're actually there. Uh, if, if I go to, uh, certain areas, whether it's like Zion or somewhere, and I'm in an area kind of away from all the established trails and stuff, areas where it's, it's okay to go off trail in some of these areas. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do this sort of move where I'm just like walking down the road casually waiting and I'll all of a sudden, you know, wait for a gap in cars and I'll just kind of dart off into the bushes. Right. I'm like, all right, hopefully no one saw me go there. Right, so like, right. Literally, I don't want anyone to, to follow me back in there. Um, but also just being mindful of the, the digital wake we leave behind in terms of, um, hoping to inspire people to perhaps find subjects of their own and maybe small stuff that's, you know, is, is at their feet. Mm -hmm. Um, but not saying, you know, don't go to this exact Canyon I went to, uh, but find your own Canyon, find something cause you'll value it more. Right. I think that's, that's the important underlying issue. But you may have, I mean, it's certainly in, in a period of, of thousands of years, you may be the first set of human eyes to experience this environment. And that has to be an incredible experience. It is. And I mean, even if it's something as simple as, um, like when I was in death Valley, I was climbing up a hillside. Like I know that many people have climbed up this hillside before, but what are the odds that I'm the first person to ever touch this rock? Mm -hmm. It's, it's just, there's something kind of, kind of nice about that. And, and sometimes you don't have to go too far off the beaten path at all to find some areas where you can tell that very few people have been to. Um, cause people usually stick to the really, um, popular and, and common areas. Um, but then also in, in the, the, the human history of it all, you know, you have the native Americans that this was their home and everything. And, and I think it's always fascinating to, to think to how, you know, people survived in these areas and thrived in these areas. And then here I am just a visitor versus this was, this was their home. So. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really remarkable. I have I have so much respect for the work that you produce and and Thank and you. and the way that you produce it. I mean, it's it's one thing to make the work the center of the experience, but it it really feels like you are one of those photographers for whom the work is a byproduct of the experience. It is. Um and, and it's it's also kind of interesting because I mean, I I do, you know, I I take pictures of leaves and rocks and twigs and stuff. That's kind of the joke I have between me and my wife. You know, it's, I'll go off in somewhere and just take pictures of leaves and rocks and twigs and stuff. <laughs> Don't forget mud. Um, <laughs> and mud. Yes, mud's very important. Uh, but the, the actual product is really just, is the video of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, it still is amazing that any of this is possible, that one can go off in these areas and, and kind of do their own thing and just bring along a video camera as well and, and put together the videos and stuff after the fact. But, but that, that is enough to actually be able to, to earn a living from it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful for that ability and especially the timing of it all with it getting started with the great recession and then kind of, you know, making me, me jump into the pool a little faster with right. the, uh, with the uh, pandemic and everything else that's happened. So so where do you go next when the world kind of opens back up? Where creatively, uh, lo- logistically, physically, like wh- what's next on on your radar once you can sort of get back out into the world without the same kind of restrictions? Mostly the same thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the, the beauty of it. I, um, earlier on, I was figuring, hey, you know, once I have the ability to do all this on my own, which I, I do now. And once the pandemic restrictions are lifted, then, you know, I'll go on more trips and stuff. And, 
um, you know, I'll, I'll probably work a couple more trips here and there. One, one of my things is, um, go on some trips and just not, not bring the video camera, maybe go on some trips and not bring the still camera, mm-hmm. um, just to have a more of an experience out there. Right. Um, maybe just a actual backpacking trip to just cover a lot of ground, but I have more flexibility to do that. But, um, but the main thing is just since, since I am so, so stubborn in my ways, which has worked really well for me for the past time, I just want to kind of keep going on the course and, and see where it goes, but nothing, nothing dramatic. I know people have ambitions of traveling the world and do that. And I, I'll just drive around my forerunner into some nondescript Canyon somewhere and, uh, and, uh, enjoy my time out there. Yeah. It's great. It's really great. I mean, it's, I, I think y- you are kind of a, well, certainly, I mean, I, I'm going to say anomaly and I don't mean this in a bad way at all. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you are proof that you don't need, you know, 17 million followers and, and these ridiculous clickbaity titles and, and over the top photos to have an honest, authentic, and meaningful career as a maker circa 2021, 22, right? Yeah. Um, because I, I think there is a, a trajectory, certainly that, that younger makers, photographers, artists, writers, doesn't really, filmmakers, I don't think it really matters what, what the discipline or the vehicle is, but there's a certain trajectory that, that has been sort of spoon-fed and bought into mm-hmm that you have to follow. And, and it is so refreshing to see not only work with integrity, but the, the presence of, of you in, in sort of representing the work and putting the work out into the world, proceeding with that same kind of integrity. Yeah. It's, I, I think with all the social media stuff, um, and what it. Uh, asks of a lot of people, I think I can only imagine it's got to be incredibly unfulfilling to try to keep up with that, especially as things are changing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it definitely shows that, you know, there is, there is a, there is possibility to make it work. And, and the key thing is just being, being genuine with it all and not trying to follow the trends and, uh, yeah. And being stubborn. Stubborn's good. Stubborn's really good. You can see Ben's work on his website at benhorn.com. That's B-E-N-H-O-R-N-E.com. He's also got a terrific YouTube channel where he shares film reveals, reflections on his photographic process, and some really great behind-the-scenes videos of his trips all over the Southwest, including his recent trip to Zion. Just search for Ben Horn on YouTube. You can also find him on Instagram at Ben Horn Photo. Subscribe to Process Driven in your favorite podcast app, or you can get everything I produce, every Process Driven, every in-between, every iteration, and any one-off conversation that I may do all in one feed by subscribing to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything. You can support the shows by leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen, or by sharing them on your own social media. I've also just relaunched my newsletter with a new title and a more refined focus. It's called Create and Release, and you can read the first issue and subscribe on my website at jeffreysadoris.com, which is J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com. You can also connect with me on Instagram and Twitter and Clubhouse at Jeffrey Sidoris. And if you'd like to share some feedback or let me know what you're working on, email me at talkback at jeffreysedoris.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'll be back in a week or so with another show, and I hope you'll join me. Until then, as always, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time and attention, and I'll talk to you on the next one.